Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, we finally have a long-anticipated interview with Patty Shannon from Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff. Um, basically, uh, we just had the ZTV uh, marathon. That was really great. Uh, up in the uh, future, we're going to be looking into having a uh, radio show with the developers of the Zeitgeist Movement Toolbar. Um, until then, uh, for now, basically we'll be talking with Mr. Shannon. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself, Patty. Uh, tell them a bit about your background, and uh, you know, we'll go from there. Hiya, hiya. Uh, well, um, well, I live in uh, Lancaster in England. Um, I've been a member of the World Socialist Movement for oh, about 25 years. Um, I made this uh, film with um, uh, three, three other um, colleagues uh, about five years ago. Um, I just wrote a far. Uh, we've been trying to make one for, <clears throat> excuse me, um, some time, and I kept writing things and saying, "No, that's no good. That's too complicated, and there's too many things in it." <clears throat> Finally, wrote one off straight, and um, we we went after some freezing shed in. Uh, Newcastle and shot it in one morning for um, a total cost of forty pounds or eighty dollars. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> so that's why it's a bit low tech. Um, we, I wasn't. I don't think any of us were expecting it to be quite as popular as it uh, turned out to be. To be honest, and um, I'm, I think we're all delighted that um, that uh, Zeitgeist uh, people are. Watching it as well. Well, yeah, actually, we're kind of delighted that you know you said that you've been you've you've watched our films before too. Um, how did you first get exposed to the the Zeitgeist movement, more specifically Zeitgeist Addendum? Well, somebody came to one of our meetings and said, um, "Oh, hey, you know what you should do is you should um, have a look at this uh, this Zeitgeist thing that's just come out." So we said, "Oh, what's this? We didn't know about it." So um, mm-hmm. we got a DVD. And watched it. And Zeitgeist. This, is, this was Zeitgeist one. And um, <clears throat> and at first, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I I have to say, I particularly enjoyed the part on religion. But uh, that was only because um, you know I'm an atheist, and uh, we've uh, you know we've uh, often often encountered religious objections to the idea of a world without money. So so that was quite that was refreshing. Let's let's put it that way. But um, on the whole, Zeitgeist one, it seemed. It seems to us wasn't particularly for us. It, there was a lot about conspiracy theories and things that um, didn't really sit comfortably with us. But um, there was a, <coughs> there was this promise of a of a, <coughs> a further zeitgeist to come out, the uh, addendum, which we thought, oh well, that might be quite interesting. All in all, the, there was a criticism of capitalism that was nascent there that uh, that was certainly we thought was encouraging. Um, but we weren't expecting a whole lot. And then when the Zeitgeist 2 came out, and there was this entire section on this thing called Beans Project, uh, well, I mean, I, I can... <laughs> it was one of those situations where, you know, you almost kind of remember what, where you were and what you were doing when this came... when you, when you first saw this. Right. Um, we watched it, and, well, couldn't believe it. We, we were hearing... We were hearing our, almost our own case being, being told back at us. But in a much more professional way, in a in a professional-looking, um, you know, 
uh, moving something way beyond what we could do. And uh, and there it all was. And plus there was there was all this sort of um, you know there was this guy who'd been working all this out. He'd got all these pictures and and designs for futuristic cities. And uh, well, it was quite amazing. And we kind of looked at each other and go and went. Well, this sounds like what we've been arguing for the last hundred years. Right. So that's when we started to get very, very interested. Well, that's, uh, you know, basically, because I know that um, Jacques did have experience with, uh, like, socialist and communist movements when he was younger, when he was coming up with various oh. ideas. And mind you, this is this is all during the days when, you know, socialism and communism were very well connected with fascism and um mm-hmm. Capitalists like to pretend that their system doesn't turn into fascism, but obviously it does. Um, mm. and, and I've said to people more than once that uh, I think that the capitalist fascism is even more insidious because you don't know what's happening. It, they don't, they mm. don't show up at your house with a gun. They just buy out your media and then buy out your land and then you know <laughs> buy out your jobs and then eventually they own everything. And the whole time you're basically under the mistaken impression that you actually chose your president, that you chose your congressman, you know, depending on where you live, of course, um, you know, that you choose your leaders and that therefore, you know, everything's fine. And um, so, yeah, it's just, uh, I definitely think that, you know, we, we focus on that. I think that the only major differences that at least came up initially was just that Jacques points out that um, he feels that we should uh, try to address scarcity as kind of like a, just the, the notion of scarcity as something that has to be, you know, attacked directly as like a threat to humanity itself. Um, and that the the ideas that he brings up about like you know like social like the social situations like you know how laws are not really as effective as trying to treat the root causes of problems um, mm-hmm. and you know I don't think that those are ideas that would be unreasonable to socialists by any means I mean I've, uh, I'm actually friends with the in the United States we had a, a socialist party candidate for president uh, I think his name was Brian Moore. Um, I had him on my show several times, actually, and, you know, he was a really nice guy and very well-intentioned. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he pointed out that a lot of the, the problems people have with socialism is that it's, uh, it, it has to do with people who are, by Brian's estimation, not good socialists. You know, the, mm-hmm. they always point out the, the big red scare or they, they point to people like Kim Jong-il or, you know, whatever, and that it's not really what you guys wanted. I mean, especially when, I, mean, I don't know, like, what the difference is with the World Socialist Movement and the Socialist Party here. But, you know, the idea that everything should be done democratically and stuff like that, that never seems to happen when, you know, when you do it in these countries, or at least, you know, whether it's the socialist, basically, I don't even think it's the socialist system's fault at that point. It's just that, that in practice, it doesn't seem to happen that way. So, I mean, mm-hmm. um, what, what would you say, for example, if you were going to, you know, call people out on, on what you feel are the misconceptions about socialism? Well, I mean, I think the first thing, to say, I, I looked at your the blog that you you've been writing, and I, I was pleased to see that. Um, well, for, to begin with, you, you don't seem to you don't seem to blame Karl Marx for directly for what happened in places like Russia and China, which is quite which is a good thing because uh, uh, Marx um, wouldn't really have advocated the things that went on in those places. Um, and if you were to sort of, which a lot of people do, assume that. You know those places were Marxist, so they, they obviously they throw out Marx, um, which means that if you if you've got to then think about um, a post-scarcity, post-capitalist society, and you've thrown out Marx, you have to reinvent an awful lot of wheels, and you've got to get you've got to get them right as well, because if your wheels don't work, your wagon's not going to run. Um, 
the problem with um, Russia, for example, was that um, it wasn't really a case that Marx's vision was sort of misapplied. It was that Marx's, Marx's ideas were actively distorted by Lenin, essentially. I mean, I can you know, give you some examples of that, but... Um, Feel free, go ahead. Well, well, Marx never advocated um, a vanguardist revolution, that is to say, a revolution led by a small minority professional revolutionary group. Uh, his, his view, which, well, he made it very, uh, very plain that um, the emancipation of the working class, that is to say, the, most of the people in the world, uh, has to be the work of the working class themselves. And he even said, um, we cannot cooperate with people who openly state that workers are too uneducated to emancipate themselves. Now, this wasn't the case in, uh, in Russia. Lenin took a qu quite a different view. In fact, he said that, um, that people by their own um, efforts will never achieve more than working class, more than uh, trade union consciousness. So, so they had a, a very elitist, vanguardist view in Russia for all sorts of historical reasons. Russia wasn't really ready for socialism, um, as we understood it. Um, I mean, maybe the best thing is if I describe how we just how we define socialism, and you can see for yourself that it's not what what has occurred in those countries. We define it as the the common ownership and the democratic control of all the means and instruments of producing wealth. I'm doing this memory, by the way. I'm not I'm not quoting. Um, right. The means and instruments of, of uh, producing producing wealth. Mm -hmm. Well, it means that all the people own um, everything, and they all control it. They all have democratic um, participation in in uh, controlling these things. I mean, you didn't have that in in Russia. You didn't have it in China. Um, you know, we, our conception is a moneyless, stateless, um, uh, non-market, um, post-scarcity democratic. Uh, society, well, as as um, you know, Peter Joseph has, has, has correctly pointed out. You know, there was money in in the Soviet Russia. There was money in China. They didn't abolish the market. All that happened was that the state took over and controlled everything. You had a, you had a form of capitalism completely controlled by the state, or what we used to, what we called state capitalism. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything. It wasn't anything to do with what Marx and Engels had uh, advocated, and it's it's never been anything to do with what we've advocated. So, um, in I mean, in fact, I mean, we're, we're ours is such an old um, organisation that we were around back in uh, at the time of the uh, 1917 uh, revolution, and in fact, we were the only um, organisation in Britain to publish the Bolshevik anti-war. Um, uh, statements because we were all for them being against the war and getting out of the war. Mm -hmm. um, but the re but really after that, when they started to claim that what had gone on in Russia was actually socialist, well, that's when we started to say, oh, well, I don't know, wait a minute. And um, already from 1918, we were saying, well, we don't know what's going on in Russia, but we don't really think it's socialism. It couldn't be. They're not historically ready for it. Right. Well, I remember also, I mean, it's like in my blog about it was that the the situation over there was already really poor and the infrastructure was not really ready for any sort of like uh, 
system where everybody can work together in that way. Um, I guess basically this is something that was brought up even on the Wikipedia entries about communism and socialism was that, you know, ideally what the situation in Russia was just not a good position to be, you know, be starting. And they usually thought that you, you'd have this capitalist infrastructure to begin with, and mm -hmm. then you would move into sharing everything, um, and then you'd be able to accomplish it. I mean, is, is that kind of what you're getting at about saying that they weren't ready? No, this is what Lenin said. This is Lenin's idea. Is what you start off. You start off with a kind of capitalist infrastructure using money in the market, but state controlled. And from there, and from there, you somehow, in some in some way that you know never quite got explained, you move from that into what he called, um, you know, the higher phase of communism. He, he he claimed that he was quoting Marx, but in fact he wasn't quoting Marx at all. Marx and Engels both used Words socialism and communism, you know, to mean the same thing interchangeably. Right. So we've always, so we've always used them to mean the same thing. Um, you know, that is to say, uh, um, a world without money, essentially, a world without uh, markets and the uh, profit system. That's not how Lenin meant it at all. He he had a different agenda completely. Yeah, and that's you know that, that basically gets realized in the oh geez the Russian word that I equate to being like the equivalent of the neoconservatives of Russia the the super elite they call them like nomen I'm never going to be able to pronounce it but there's a Russian oh, word <laughs> nomenclature isn't it yeah. yes yes uh, basically that there's always an elite the the, the pigs from animals on the farm who changed yeah. the rules when nobody was looking to all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others. Um, and, and, uh, and I uh, basically I, I, I recognize this, and I think one of the reasons I approach it the way I did is because I do have friends who are who are from the Socialist Party here, and I've always been taught by my mother to be very open-minded. And uh, there were, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is at the time that I had the Socialist Party candidate on my radio show, I was a libertarian, so I was far to the right. And you know, the, he the funny thing is, he told me it was the best interview he'd ever had because most of the people from you know libertarian side would always be very unfair and generally talk over top of socialists or try to, you know, jump all over them. And it's because they've, they've almost turned the word socialism into like a racist slur, you know, something that you throw at somebody, you spit it at them. And I think in many cases, as you've already pointed out, most of these people don't really know what they're talking about when they say the word socialist. Um, and I actually did a show not long ago. I don't know if you, if you heard it, but it was about, uh, it was actually dissecting, um, I basically would call it Ayn Rand and the philosophy of the New World Order, that you know, if there is such an organization as the New World Order, some elite group of people behind the shadows trying to rule everything, that you know, free market capitalism, particularly Ayn Rand's brand of it with all of the other attitudes that she had, would be perfect because that now you're brainwashing everybody into thinking that it is right and proper that they should have all the toys and <laughs> you should not. You know, basically, I quoted, I actually quoted what you had said in your in your film in my blog was that, you know, that it's here you have a almost a cult of personality because there are people even now in the Libertarian Party who worship Ayn Rand like she's a goddess, and mm. you know, just quoting her as if they're quoting the jargon of Jesus himself, and mm. you know, and this notion that you glorify these people that are totally selfish, totally don't care for anybody but themselves, you know. Um, I mean, it, it, the more you studied it, the more deep and dark it got. And I did this more in response to the fact that we get a lot of attacks on the Venus Project where they say that we're supposedly some gatekeepers to the New World Order, all the while they're, you know, holding up signs at Tea Party conventions saying, you know, quoting different parts of Ayn Rand's books and, you know, stuff like that. When Ayn Rand is the one who glorifies the, the rich elite over, the, over everybody else, 
going so far as to um, make that uh, one in one story where all the elite go on strike and because we don't have the elite, it destroys the planet and everybody, you know, everybody's just cowering and saying, oh, please come back and lead us, you great financial elite. We promise we'll never bother you with things like regulation or taxation ever again. You know, I don't think that people will ever realize the fact that as we're touting supposedly the freedom movement, the, the system that we're talking about doesn't really create freedom. Um, I mean, I, I assume that you're familiar with Ayn Rand's work. Not particularly, no, but I know the, I know the general um, line of argument, the, um, the libertarian alliance argument, free market, basic mm-hmm. uh, capitalist argument. Um, I really, yeah, I, I mean, this is a long battle that's going to have to be fought, isn't it? I mean, you've got, um, on the one side, you've got um, people who said, and I, I think I said something similar in, actually in the film, you've got people who, who are, they're always going to say, look, this is, this is the end of history. This is where it stops. It, it doesn't get better than this. You, okay, you've got this inequality. You've got, you've got this one or 2% of people in the world who are uh, obscenely rich and uh, billions in poverty. But that's how it's going to be. And there is no other system of society that can improve on that. You're always going to get people who, who will say that and they will argue it and they will use Ayn Rand and they'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll, they'll use, um, um, you know, all these other people, um, all these other so-called experts that exist out there, capitalist economists. Who are <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, and, you know, people like Hayek and Von Mies have got, uh, they've got interesting arguments that, that need to be, they need to be counteracted. I mean, they have got interesting, they, they've actually taken the trouble to look into, um, you know, what you call socialist or resource-based economics a little mm-hmm. bit, and they, they think they've identified um, flaws in it. Um, well, then, you know, the funny we, thing is, Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that they have identified flaws in the idea of central planning, as far as we're concerned, the sort of central planning, planning that you've got in Soviet Russia. Right. But that's, that's not an end to the, the, the debate. The debate will continue. But on the, other, on the other side, then you've got people, well, like yourselves and, and us, who are saying, well, actually, you know, capitalism is not the end of the story. We can move on from this, because any, any society that can't cater for something like three quarters of the people in it cannot be working very well and there must be a better way of doing things it cannot it cannot be the the, the optimal arrangement that two percent of the world's population get to own everything <laughs> how right. can that be how can that be optimal we must be doing something wrong if you were an engineer looking at a system that was working that badly you'd say that's that doesn't work that's badly designed there must be a better way to do it so that debate is going to to continue and uh, you know we have to do our part of that well that's you know i guess the thing i was going to point out from the they tend to be that was why i said it's almost religious because in many cases a lot of the things that the libertarians uh free market capitalists spout out it, they don't even make any logical sense and some of it's kind of based on that that hero worship i was talking about earlier i got into an argument with one of them once and he's like well we have proven through history that if you know that as productivity increases wages increase with it as if it was like a law of physics that says that your employer is going to pay you more just because productivity went up. And that mm-hmm. may have been true at one time, but it's not true anymore. You know, the, the trend that we notice is that 
you know, like that's why they're outsourcing, you know, that because they can get productivity out of somebody who's so desperate that they'll take whatever you can give them, the scraps from the table, you know, either that or they're going to get rid of you entirely through automating your job and getting rid of you, you know, any need for you. Well, if they could do that, they would, obviously, I think so, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely right. and wages don't go up automatically as a consequence of profits. Wages go up because workers actually organise to get higher wages through unionisation, through workers' activity. I mean, the capitalists aren't going to pay out. They don't just sort of, you know, choose to pay out higher wages as a kind of bonus to you. Oh, you've been good workers. You know, well, we're going to give you a 10% pay rise. I mean, maybe some employers do do that. But on the whole, the tendency is to extract as much work from you as they can and pay you as little money as they can, you know, possibly get away with. That's how it is. Yep, and that's, you know, between that and just the fact that it's the notion that freeing up all the markets, you know, it's like they talked about that being the end of, you know, the end of the story. It would be. It would kill us. We can't even maintain it because that's where the, you know, the greening parties arguments about it come up is the fact that we can't sustain the planet if we continue going down the route we're going. You know, this notion that anything in the name of profit is justifiable. Um, I've been reading actually a book from another group called the, uh, the Community Planet uh, Foundation, and he quoted that the topsoil issue, for example, is getting so out of control that it's looking like we're not going to have any if we continue on the route that we're going, and that mm. the organizations that are supposed to protect us from situations like that are saying, well, we see that there's a problem, but it'd be, it would be prohibitively expensive to fix, so dot, 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 you know, we have this thing that could kill the planet. But we're going to keep mm-hmm. doing it because it would be too expensive to fix. You know, they, they basically they protect the economy at all costs because that's what gets you voted into office. But if they don't consider the fact that, you know, there's got to be a better way to do it that doesn't involve destroying the planet. I agree. I, I think what's, what's, what I find particularly chilling at the moment is that a lot of um, um, advanced capitalist countries, no, particularly um, the UK, America, China, Europe, are buying up vast vast tracts of land in Africa in order to outsource their their domestic um, agriculture. Mm-hmm. So this is this is different from buying off African farmers. This is actually taking over the land itself, shutting out the Africans, Africans, and using it as a sort of extension of your own domestic agriculture. This is quite. I think this is this is this is quite a a scary thing that's happening. They're admitting, as you say, that uh, you know issues like um, like topsoil erosion, um, the spread of biofuels, and things like that. They're not actually dealing with the problem. They're just buying up areas of cheap land and dispossessing the locals. And uh, you know, this is again, it is completely unsustainable. But the injustice of it, as well, is is, is staggering. You know, that's yeah, that's definitely the case. And I. I don't know that the funny thing is, is that I, it occurs to me, I, I wonder about this. I'm like, how did they get to this idea that this was okay? How do they, how do you get to the point where you as a human being can consciously make a decision that, you know, it's going to hurt hundreds of thousands of people. And how can you just get to the point where that's okay? And then that I, then after I studied more Ayn Rand, I was like, well, here you have it. This, this is an indoctrination where they tell you, that not only is it right and proper for you to exploit those underneath you, the, the less productive, as she puts it in her books, it's mm-hmm. encouraged. It's, it's basically heroic, is how she put it. It's, it's what all the heroes in all of her books do. 
And at that point, you have what essentially amounts to the mind Kampf of the neoconservative movement. It, everything that she put in her books and the various studies that I looked about, it all looks like the kind of thing that you would have seen Donald Rumsfeld, you know, Karl Rove, George Bush, Dick Cheney. You can almost imagine that these people have a book club where they sit around and listen to this stuff because that's how they act. You know, and her statements about the Native Americans, about how we should just, you know, well, if we're more civilized and they don't have a right to the land, you know, we, we're justified in taking over the planet, this, or not the planet, that continent. It's kind of an interesting Freudian slip there because I do think they are interested in digging over the planet. But, mm-hmm. you know, and just her attitude that, you know, everything that was done to the Native Americans was totally justified in the name of progress and all that other crap. It just, mm-hmm. this is the same person who supposedly is supposed to be the author of the non-aggression principle. And I just, when I, when I really think about it, it just seems to me like this, this person wants a non-aggression principle to be the, the, the standard because they don't want, you know, everybody else to gang up on them. <laughs> Originally, yeah. They want us to be pacifists for that reason alone. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm still a pacifist. That doesn't, as much as, you know, much as feasible, mind you, um, I still believe in defending myself, but it doesn't change the fact that it, it, it seems a little odd to me that she would on one turn, you know, found this idea of, um, you know, the, this notion of uh, non-aggression principle and then say that everything happened to the Native Americans was fine. You know, that's because obviously there was an awful lot of violations of the non-aggression principle. <laughs> but I mean, uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, Ayn Rand is as as well known um, in the UK, I don't think, as uh, as in America. We I mean, we have a slightly different culture here. We've had we've we've been exposed to a lot more um, national governments that describe themselves as socialists. So, although we we haven't got a um, a sort of terror of the idea of socialism in this country, um, uh, like I think uh, a lot of a lot of um, right-wing Republicans have got in the states, notably with that uh, Obama's uh, healthcare reforms recently. Um, over here, socialism doesn't mean anything. It just means um, a government that nationalises the old industry. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have this long tradition also of um, free market uh, capital. We, we have our conservative or Tory party that argues for a small state, you know, in line with Republican thinking. Um, but even the Tories have nationalized lots of industries in the past when it suited them. So it, it's the, the, the sort of political climate in the UK is a bit different from America. I, I, I don't personally, I don't perceive the kind of extremes that I see or what, what appear to be in states. We do have free market, the people who argue for free market uh, capitalism. And, um, you know, you said, uh, you said earlier, you know, well, how do these people justify it to themselves? And I, I think, actually, sadly, it's, it's, that's rather easy to answer. I think all that these people say to themselves is, well, if I don't do this to the Yanomami Indians in uh, Venezuela or um, some uh, some group in Africa, if I don't do this to them, if I don't Or Iraq. Or, or anywhere else, yeah. <laughs> someone else will. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way the system works. I think this is what... This is what the Ayn Rand people are really. That's what they, they they make a virtue of what they see as necessity. This is how capitalism works. It's kill or be killed. It's win or go under, and therefore, um, you know, that's what they celebrate. Mm-hmm. And this is this is this is the and it, 
you're right. You know, this, this is a, a, an entrenched ideology. We, we've got to attack. We've got to break it down. We've got to show that actually, you know, as I said before, this, this, isn't, this isn't how it has to be. Um, but people, you know, people, I think people don't have a, a strong grasp of history. Um, which, you know, I mean, I, 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 I was taught history at school and I understand why people don't have a strong grasp of history because uh, schools manage to make it the most boring, irrelevant list of battles and dates that, uh, that they can. Um, mm-hmm. People don't want to know about history. History is just, you know, what Henry Ford said, history is bunk. Um, you don't see history as relevant. But, you know, history does show us how, how we got where we are at the moment. And, and when you consider history, and this is something, you know, that, that socialists think is important as well. You know, we call ourselves materialists or in the sense that um, we understand history as a, as, a, as a set of changing material circumstances that has, uh, that has engendered change. And when you look at the, the sort of progression of history through hundreds of years, um, you can see a sort of, um, you see a sort of trajectory. You realize that the idea that history stops today is as if you were flying through the air and you suddenly hit a brick wall that came out of nowhere. <laughs> right. In fact, you know, we're not, we're not stopping at all. If anything, society is is accelerating all the time. I mean, I think um, Peter Joseph has made the same point that um, in technological terms, we're accelerating at a, 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 a phenomenal rate. Um, and that's, that's, there's no sign of that, that stopping. Well, you know, and this is a point of agreement that we've got is that um, technologically and uh, scientifically we're accelerating at such a, um, a rapid geometric rate um, that our, 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 our culture, you know, our cultural ideas, our economic system, has just not kept pace at all. It's, it's lagging somewhere back in the 19th century. And this is, this is the challenge we have to, um, we have to face. We have to, you know, confront these roundouts um, and these Adam Smith um, Institute people and say, look, you know, that all might have been very well in the 19th century when the world wasn't capable of more than capitalism, but it's certainly not, it's certainly not true of the 21st century. We're more than capable of progressing beyond capitalism. And in fact, we need to do it because otherwise, as you said, we're going to run out of topsoil, we're going to run out of space, we're going to run out of food. Right. That's, you know, that's the thing. I, it, it's kind of the, the, the coup de grace, the argument, so to speak, is regardless of what they say, you know, even if we did continue with their economic system, even if it did, even if it succeeded in that it made everybody supposedly better off economically, which I don't believe it could, but um, the planet can't put up with it for much longer. That's, that's the problem. And I, the, the thing that I find so interesting is that the, uh, their supposed answer to all of this is that the consumer will prevent uh, all of these bad things from happening, that we as consumers are supposed to be the answer. And uh, mind you, most of these people also don't like direct democracy, and I bring this up all the time. You know, they say, well, because I, I worked with Senator Mike Gravel, and he had the National Initiative for Democracy. He wants to see direct democracy be possible through ballot initiatives in, you know, the federal government here in the United States. He's mm-hmm. currently working on getting one co- uh, passed in South Korea. 
Um, but they don't like that. They're like, well, I don't want you know, mob rule. I don't want the mob to be making all my decisions. The uneducated mob, you know, but they, they, they don't have, basically they have a problem with the mob, so to speak, being the final arbiter when it comes to lawmaking, but they, they also expect that same mob to be the final arbiter when it comes to consuming. And we've already seen that the average consumer, particularly in a, um, a greed-based capital system, is just as you know, greedy as everybody else, sometimes either through um, intention or just necessity. Like there are a lot of times, like for example, I don't shop at Walmart, um, and I have no intention to, uh, but there are, as I'm doing more research, I'm finding out that just not shopping at Walmart is not enough. There's nothing else available because all the businesses are changing their attitudes towards the, the same way that Walmart does things. You're, you know, no matter where you go now, you're going to end up with some product, you know, that was basically was built with slave labor, you know, or subsidies or bad environmental practices. You know, that's where it comes out of necessity. And the more they destroy the economy, the more we have to accept these products because we can't afford anything else. You know, mm -hmm. I have friends of mine who hate Walmart, but they have no choice but to shop there or they're not going to or they just can't afford to live. You know, we see that a lot more, I think, in Michigan because – here in Michigan in the United States, everything was based on the auto industry, so we're kind of a uh, testbed example of the technological unemployment that we talk about in the Venus Project uh, because, you know, our whole economy was based on that. They're trying to adapt it to other things. That's not working. They're trying to continue a system with money um, and then use what amounts to at least what it would be referred to as socialist programs, but they, you can't fund socialism on broken capitalism because nobody has any money. They, you, know, you can't tax them if they don't have anything. You have to take a totally different approach if you're going to ever expect to do that. And it's, it's definitely not going to come from just, well, I guess we'll just raise the taxes because that, of course, it does drive businesses out. I don't think it has anywhere near as much of an effect on getting businesses out of this country as some of the, you know, the other benefits of going to third world countries. And that's like uh, they did a really brief documentary about that. It's called Outsourcing Greenville. And uh, it's, it, it had to do with Greenville, Michigan. There was a plant that had been making refrigerators for you know, a long time. And, you know, there was nothing wrong with the plant, you know, and the, the local unions made all kinds of concessions to try to get this company to stay. Uh, the governor was going to give them tax rebates, you know, deregulations that they asked for. And they said, no, that's okay. Uh, we still want to go to Mexico because we can pay them $1.43 an hour. That's, that was the bottom line. It wasn't any of that other stuff that supposedly is the thing that drives everybody out. It was, in Mexico, I can open up a plant where there's no real regulations in the form of, like, you know, having to treat people like human beings. Um, everybody there is so desperate because of the terrible economy that they'll accept the $1.43 an hour because it's better than starving to death. You know, and they don't – that's the real core of the issue here. You know, the, the, the government regulation and all that I think plays some part of it, but as far as saying that's the all of it, I don't believe that for a second. And I think if we deregulated everything, um, what you'd be looking at is the norm – would in fact be let's crash economies so that we can force people to work in our factories for pennies on the dollar. Um, and they do that. Right. And honestly, I think the whole system works as one big unit because like, you, know, you see it with the farmers. They, they'll go into a small country with their subsidized uh, you know, food or whatever. They'll sell it at under the cost of production, putting all the local businesses and farmers out of work. And then in turn, now they have a small army of people to work in their sweatshop factories. And, yeah, we could get rid of the subsidies, and that would make it a little harder, but that doesn't change the fact that after a company is made to the point where it's a mega corporation, after they have that much money, they can afford to take a loss to put everybody out of business. It's what they do with Walmart all the time. They, they put a, you know, a lot of local businesses out of work because they can afford to do it. They can afford to take a loss for a while 
because the, the, it's essentially an investment for you to put your, your competition out of business. Because after you're the only business, you can set whatever price you want. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, I guess um, as far as like, uh, what, what would you say are, as far as like our approach versus your approach, what would you say, are, is there anything about the Venus Project approach that you would find uh, that you don't agree with? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I'm not too keen on the architecture myself. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> oh, I'm glad that's a minor. That's a pretty minor problem, though. So. That's a pretty minor problem. Um, well, yeah, I mean, our. Um, I think probably the thing that puzzled me most about the um, now I don't know if this is the Venus uh, project argument or Zeitgeist argument, or if it's the same thing, but um, there seems to be. Um, as I understand it, a rejection of what we you see what we have is a, um, a, a revolutionary approach to the problem. What we say is that capitalism is you know uh, it's a bad system you know for all the reasons we've gone into, and what we need to do is get rid of it, actively get rid of it, and replace it with something else. Now, what Venus seems to be saying is something a bit different from that. It's saying that um, because um, as mechanization uh, takes over production, it will um, it will mean more and more more and more workers won't have jobs. Therefore, they won't be able to buy goods. Therefore, now tell me if I'm wrong on this. Therefore, um, the markets will start to collapse, and capitalism will go with it. So capitalism will collapse because. I suspect there's two arguments. One is the um, what I'd call the underconsumption argument that workers can't buy back the you know the goods that they produce or the goods that the machines produce. And the other one is that as um, um, automation reduces costs, prices would fall to zero, and that that the market would collapse in that way too. Either way, the idea is that capitalism is going to collapse now. I think we've got a bit of a problem with this because, well, in short, what if you roll? What if it doesn't collapse? I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, people were saying that capitalism was on the point of collapse. You know, it was all over. It was just it was all over by the shouting. Um, what we had to do was get on with the new system right now. They were saying that back in 1929, right. the Wall Street, Wall Street crash. And they carried on saying it through the 30s. Um, well, it didn't, obviously. It, it went through a nasty collapse, but it recovered. Now, it's going through uh, a bit of a collapse at the moment, well, an economic um, downturn, as it's known. Well, the likelihood is it's going to recover. Cap capitalism, as we see it, is, 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 is very adaptable. It's, mm -hmm. it, goes through, it goes through periodic booms and slumps. And without getting into all the, you know, the whys and wherefores of, you know, of, of all of that, I think most people can agree, yeah, it does do that. It goes through booms and slumps. And when it goes through a slump, it, it recovers. Prices are very cheap. Workers are very cheap. And it recovers and it builds again. Well, from our point of view, capitalism isn't going to collapse. It, there's, no, there's, no real, there's no reason to expect that to be so. Now, given that, 
that means that you can't you can't wait for capitalism to do your work for you. You've actually got to have a, a plan to get rid of it. It's a pl- revolution essentially, and that seems to me a difference that we've got in zeitgeist. The, the zeitgeist view, view is that um, don't worry, it's all going to fall down, and all we need to do is build the new society um, in among the ruins, as it were. We don't take that view. We think that, well, I mean, even if it was to happen like that way, we're not even convinced it would be such a good thing. The idea of capitalism collapsing to us suggests that what you'd end up with is, is billions of starving people, absolute total chaos, and um, and a return to some sort of dark age uh, situation where it was, you know, everyone for themselves and a war of all against all. We don't want to see civilization collapse. We don't think that that's... There are people who think that, that that's the way forward, but, you know, we don't take that view. Well, you know, I, I understand, actually, and, you know, and a lot of us have thought about, you know, what if it doesn't. Um, uh-huh. to, to, to further analyze, like, the, the various reasons why we feel that it will, there's the environmental reasons, um, you know, the, the peak oil reasons, uh, the... Yeah. In addition to that, the the new element that was always dismissed as fallacy by the by the free marketeers in the past was that supposedly they they say that technological unemployment is a fallacy because they would always mind you these are usually quotes from books from back in the 40s when people had no idea what robots could do now um, that eventually more and more businesses are going to find that you know at this point the only thing that competes with sweatshop workers is robots. And the only reason they're paying sweatshop workers is because for the time being, robots might be a little bit more expensive than those sweatshop workers in certain ways. As soon as the robot technology improves, then eventually the employers are not really going to have any place for us. People are going to be begging to find, you know, more and more of that, you know, work that you're trying to find ways to be useful. And I guess, you know, if we are wrong, great. You know, uh, I'm, I'm totally fine with there being no collapse, but if not, the idea is, is that we spread the idea that we should be designing society to be self-sustaining, to be in harmony with the planet, to be in harmony with each other, and that mm. we approach this notion that, you know, if, and if, you know, if we don't have a collapse, then we can instead have a different kind of collapse, a collapse of the consciousness that was, as you put it in your film, cooperating with, with mm. the capitalist system. Mm. Um, yeah. And so even if there isn't a collapse, let's say that for some reason capitalism decides, hey, uh, maybe getting rid of all the topsoil is a bad idea. Maybe being uh, dependent on fossil fuels is a bad idea. Maybe we should stop uh, all of this, uh, you know, these wars over these inefficient energy systems. Maybe we should stop stagnating technological development. Uh, maybe we should just go ahead and let these technologies that could make things cheaper, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a hit on our profits by allowing people to develop technologies that get rid of profits. Uh, you, know, we'll, we'll, you know, let's say that, as far as I'm concerned, the reason I don't think that they'll do it before it collapses because of that, is that they will, that too many people at the top like having all the toys, okay? And mm. so if, if, but if they do, you know, as I said, if, if they do make all those changes, then great. And then I think that what will happen is it'll be, a, it'll be a social revolution at that point. It's, it's not a question of any kind of violence, um, I, I, but... Jacques Fresco's feeling on this is because he thinks that in the United States we will end up with, um, because we're so dependent on the capitalist system and that it's already causing all kinds of problems in the United States, 
um, that we will eventually have a fascist dictatorship take over. And the funny thing is, is that both the libertarians you know, and the socialists and all the people in the United States agree that that's a problem, that that's, that seems to be like what's happening because the neoconservatives got a lot of laws passed that will allow a government to protect itself from the people you know, that might be a little displeased with the way they're doing things. Um, and that's where he feels that that is the trend. And I think it's more of a matter of if, if we're wrong, then cool, no problem. But if we did not prepare for such a collapse, if we did not keep it in mind that this is a very real problem, that, and we just kind of thought we could uh, go with it from within the system to change it, then, um, then we would really be screwed. I guess that would be my point. If we start thinking from this perspective that we're expecting there to be a collapse so that we could be prepared for one, then we think that more people will survive in the end if, if there are more people looking into these self-sustaining technologies. But even that is not enough, um, mm. you know, because you, you have to have a certain value change. And that's, that's the biggest goal here is a, is a shift in consciousness. Whether there's a collapse or not is not really as important. Um, it is what we think is going to happen, but if not, that's fine, you know. Well, I think it, yeah, I, I can understand that. I mean, I think I, I think uh, what you say about um, a change in in values, uh, a revolution in values, is absolutely right. I, I think though that you, there needs to be a consideration of strategy, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we can we can agree pretty much on where we where we are now. I don't think there's much dispute about that, and. Um, to a large extent, about what we want instead. I mean, we could argue over details, but I don't think that's the, um, the, the issue. But getting from there, here to there, you know, connecting the two. Now, historically, that's been the, that's been the cause of, of more um, arguing and uh, factionalism um, among sort of general left, left-wing um you know, revolutionary groups than anything else. It's, it's getting, it's getting from the one place to the other. That's even assuming that you want the same thing at the end, which wasn't always the case. But in our case, let's say that that's a, that, that is the same. Um, is it okay to just sort of say, um, if think we'll we'll, pl- we'll plan we'll plan for a collapse because if we don't, it could be, um, and and it does collapse. We could be in trouble, um, and if it doesn't collapse, as you said, then that's okay. We can change it. But I think I'm arguing slightly, something slightly different. What I'm saying, uh, what I'm suggesting is that if it doesn't collapse, which I don't really think it will, what will what will happen is that the ruling class, the capitalist class, will stay in control. It, it, it may it, it may even go, you know, become tend more towards a fascistic. Uh, uh, society, as uh, Jacques Fresco uh, and others suggest, um, with a, a consequent taking away of uh, uh, democratic liberties, that could happen. But the only real way that that could happen is if we who oppose that didn't actively oppose it. Do you see what I mean? If right. we didn't, if we didn't, if we weren't able to organise to sort of, if you like, flex the muscle of the working class. If we weren't able to do that, we would be in real trouble. Now, the, the, the muscle that the working class has, if, if you want to, my opinion, is their ability to, A, to um, withdraw from work, i.e. strike, mm-hmm. and B, 
be to um, disrupt the activities of the captain's class. Um, I mean, as a sort of slight digression um, on this, just to illustrate this point, um, I, I have a little bit, I have a bit of a, one of my reservations about um, Zeitgeist idea of building a city, you know, building a sort of experimental city in, um, I think, was it um, South America somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, aside from the practicalities of having an island of socialism or resource-based economy inside an ocean of capitalism, aside from those sort of problematic things, um, it seems to me that the real strength of, of um, the workers in capitalism is to be in place, is actually to be completely um, completely involved in the productive processes and the distributive and the communications process, processes of capitalism, to be doing the work of the work of the owning class as we are doing at the moment. You know, we do all their useful work. And our best position is to be in that position, running all their systems, running their new services and their factories and their transport and communication, doing all of that, so that when they try to start um, taking liberties away, attacking us, as the ruling class always does, we're in a position to stop that through mass action, through mass strike or through disruption. Now, if, you're all, if you've all run off to live in a city in South America, not only have you painted a big target on yourselves, saying, hey, we're here, come and shoot at us, <laughs> but, you've also, but you've also removed yourself from the one thing, that, the one position of strength that workers potentially have. Do you see what I'm saying? No, I do see what you're saying, and that's one of the reasons why we're not we're not endeavoring to build a city just yet. But it's right. even when we do, though, it, the purpose of it is to prove that self-sustaining economies that are not based on one group of people having way more than everybody else can function. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, it occurred to me I didn't answer another one of your points earlier. Was you said that you know you think that you know because we want to eliminate things through automation, there'll be all these workers who are not taken care of. It's it's more of a matter of work becomes. Rather than manufacturing large quantities of useless goods, work becomes, mm -hmm. let's find ways to get rid of work. And then after that, those jobs are covered. And in, when you're in a society with no money, where things basically, where production becomes, let's produce as a, you know, a self-reliant hydroponic farm. That's one mm -hmm. of our big, big things. We're going to do that. Uh, where let's produce a self-sustaining clean energy power plant. Those are the things that work become, and then after that, once you've once you finish the power plant, well, then obviously everybody's monthly needs of energy are gone. Once you finish the hydroponic farm, then the food issue is dealt with. Or I mean, mind you, we have to find more than one way, but I'm just you know using examples. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, once you know is that basically the goal of the work of mankind no longer becomes to produce products to then therefore in turn line somebody else's pockets. It becomes to produce products and services that can eventually you know, take care of themselves as much as possible, okay, um, and mm -hmm. more to the point, um, to eliminate the need for work in the long run. And then even then, I mean, I think that there are some different transitional tools, like you talked about the working class taking control. I don't know if you watched uh, um, Michael Moore's recent film, uh, Capitalism, A Love Story. Uh, he goes to one of these businesses. It's a cooperated, you know, cooperative business where everything's run democratically and everybody in the company equally owns the company. Um, I think those would be good business models that could possibly be used for such infrastructure projects as trying to, um, you know, liberate mankind from the need to constantly be working. 
I agree. I, mean, I, I think things like that are really good examples of how, how it's possible for people to work um, um, collectively and cooperatively, you know, without bosses, without somebody, you know, cracking a whip over them. I think it's great as, as examples to show people that, look, you know, you don't have to live in this kind of hierarchical, stratified way where the boss takes home all the money and you take home all the aches and pains at the end of it. Well, they're, they're great. Um, I think they have, the, you know, the idea of um, cooperative working uh, patterns is, is great. And uh, this is what, what we would have to do in, in a future society is work out ways of doing that. Um, cooperatives now that, that do exist, you know, um, I, there's one in my town. It's this little whole food co-op. Um, it's been there for 25 years. It, it operates because it's in a little economic niche that's not worth enough money for any capitalist corporation to come and invade. That's how come it. Uh, it's that's how come it survived. It's a sort of, you know, it's a, a little Darwinian niche that it's got for itself. But um, um, I, I have I've met people in the past who who want wanted to establish sort of socialist communes and uh, you know these kind of things and um, unfortunately you do have to still while you're in capitalism you, you still have to deal with capitalism um, and uh, unfortunately capitalism is very good at uh, things like competition it's very good at undercutting everybody else if you're if you're a boss paying your workers the minimum wage or you know the, the, the bottom dollar you can always undercut um, well-meaning uh, cooperatives that are trying to pay their wages uh, right, equivalent right. equal wages. This is what I mean. Inside capitalism, you you just can't compete. And there's a whole history of um, cooperative, cooperative movements that have gone under because of this of capitalism's economic imperative and the fact that capitalists are, are willing to be more ruthless than co cooperative members can be. That's that's very true, and I hadn't thought about that, but it, it, it kind of proves to the point, though, is that why trying to make some of these changes within a monetary system would be very difficult. Um, it, I mean, unless you could find ways to be self-sustaining yourself and just be working on producing for yourself, um, you know, then you, if you're trying to interact with the rest of the world, I can see where basically any kind of uh, business like that is probably going to be targeted eventually if it becomes any kind of threat. Uh, you know, even if it's like not targeted with like some kind of regulation or some finding some way to make it illegal through their their ownership of the government, it could also just be a situation of they, as you pointed out, they'll just undercut you until you can't possibly compete. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why we think that perhaps focusing on you know developing self-sustaining systems that can take care of yourself as much as possible might be a good direction to take. But it's it's largely you know the transition systems are always you know being debated, and one of the reasons why we don't. Um, hammer them down and lay them out in bold letters is because they have to be able to adapt at any moment um, to whatever it is that's going on in the economy and the world at the time. Um, so um, somebody actually just asked me from the chat room, is there a transcript of capitalism and other kids stuff available? Um, I, yeah, I can, I can, I could send one. Yeah, certainly. I think, I don't know if it, I don't know if there's one online, but I could certainly send one. That would be excellent. Um, mm. Cause uh, some of the people are asking for it. Uh, so, but yeah, um, I, I definitely see where you're coming from, and I, I think that uh, overall, um, we, we definitely have some of the same goals. I think that some of our approaches might be a little different, but I was actually talking to a, a libertarian candidate for president not long ago about how the issue of freedom can be solved more through self-sustainability as opposed to trying to be, you know, we want to seek freedom 
that goes just beyond freedom of you know from your government. It's a matter of freedom from your employer, freedom from the absolute need to have everybody else around you, you know, be something that you must have in order to survive. As far as like that's concerned, is like if you wanted to approach the Venus Project from a libertarian perspective, you'd look at personal responsibility, take that to the the furthest extent, and say to yourself, well. I don't want to be dependent on, you know, uh, an employer to tell me whether or not I have the, the food to eat or the, the house over my head. I want to, you know, go basically build myself a situation where I'm self-sustaining, where I produce my own food, my own clothing, my own shelter. Um, and I, I think that that's one of the biggest differences, I think, that, you know, that people don't understand, particularly when it comes to the Venus Project. We don't advocate, advocate coercion or force. We think that these mm. systems will become fairly self-evident on their own. Um, mm. And that's and when you talk about building a city, it was more of a matter of a research center, just so we can point and say, look, there's this city, uh, and this is how things are done here. Everything is self-sustaining. You know, the, the, basically everything is set up so that it's not dirty, so that everybody has everything they need. And why aren't why isn't everybody doing this? We already have right. proven that it is possible on a small scale. There, there's a whole community of people living off the grid. That's that's not new by any means, yeah. you know. Um, and we do suggest that people find ways to do that. It's just it's um. Uh, we, if we were going to make a shift, like, you know, I remember talking to Brian Moore about what, like, you know, if he was elected president, what would he do? And he said, well, I'd nationalize basically everything, um, and we would set up a democracy system that would allow us to determine what was to be done with the resources. Um, and I don't, I didn't find that as scary as what you normally think <laughs> the socialists or communists are supposed to be doing. That doesn't really terrify me too much. So did he just, just um, I didn't catch what you said. You said he'd nationalize what? Uh, he basically said he would nationalize all the means of production. That's what he said. Mind you, I don't know if you yeah. agree with that or if you're, because well, again, there's a lot of socialist organizations. So. Well, can I ask you, I'll, I'll answer a question with a question. Did you believe him? Did I believe him? Yeah. Um, Brian Moore? Absolutely. Well, what a, what a, um, I mean that in two ways. A, did you believe that he, he meant it? And B, more to the point, did you believe that he would actually have been able to do it? Um, well, that depends. I have a funny feeling that if he tried to do it, say, through um, executive order, because, like, for example, right now, the way that our government is functioning, incorrectly, mm. I might add, um, is that presidents are pretty much allowed to do almost whatever they want. Um, mm. You know, should, but uh, could he have done it? Uh, he could have. Uh, he, I think that the Congress would finally wake up and go, oh, oh hold on a second here. You're, you're not supposed to use executive orders like that, you know, because you know, obviously the corporations would be up in arms. Do I think he could do it? Um, honestly, no, I don't think that he could. Um, I think that yeah. they would act to stop him if they didn't kill him. But yeah. but the, yeah. the idea being is just that um, – uh, don't don't worry about that. Uh, to those of you who are listening live, uh, the live segment of the show will be ending shortly. If you still have time, Patty, I'd like to continue our conversation, and it'll show up in the in the archive version of the show. Do you still have time? Okay. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, but uh, but basically, um, it more had to do with the, the notion that he wanted to nationalize the production system, and that if we did that, and then we created, mind you, that. A lot of people terrified of that because they don't think of the government in the same way that he was. And he's thinking that everything should be done through democracy. Um, so as a result, um, uh, we have more power over the production at that point because then production belongs to the people at large, not to just a few people who happen to have been lucky enough to have inherited money or the mm. rare gem whose rags to riches who's becoming, as you put it in your movie, more and more rare every day. 
you know. Mm. Um, and and so it didn't. When when you put it like that, it wasn't as scary to me. It, mm. It's you know, it's not the same thing as I'm going to roll tanks into your plant and we're going to take control of everything. And if you don't like it, we're going to round you up and throw you in a gulag and you know, or put you on a train to Siberia. You know, all that other crap that other people did. And I think that's actually mm. one of the problems we have is that. Uh, the word socialism now and the word communism especially is so charged with negativity yeah. because of that. It's like it's people have asked us, you know, so why don't you, you know, associate with this word? And I was like, well, aside from the fact that we have a couple of ideological differences, it's the fact that you can't even talk to people about the word communism without conjuring up all these negativities. They don't even want to hear you. And it, it's mm. funny, too, is that it's, it's the free-thinking people, the, the supposedly free-thinking people, who will scream at you for even bringing it up. You know, I remember um, I was working on um, – I was actually working on a, a radio station that was supposedly run by libertarians, and they would always let people run rampant in the, you know, uh, you know, in the chat rooms and all that because they were supposedly big free-speech advocates – and I played The Corporation, a really good documentary um, mm -hmm. on, my, on my channel uh, because we had like a video network basically uh, based on the Internet. And he like, you know, they, they threw me off the air for playing that documentary. You know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's free speech, isn't it? Now, mind you, there were a lot of people who did stick up for me who still didn't agree with what I was playing. You know, but um, it, it didn't change the fact, though, that they were willing to do that. You know, that they were willing to throw me off the air of their network for playing something that they that basically talked about holding corporations accountable for the bad things that they do. You know, and the, the funny thing that it was also to me was kind of backwards about that was that if we're not allowed to be consumer advocates, how is the consumer supposed to be this this balancing issue, you know, the force behind the invisible hand that's supposed to keep capitalism from going badly if we are spat on for talking badly about corporations? Yeah. Yeah. How can you possibly expect them to be the balancing factor? You know, so, you know, in any case, though, I mean, uh, I guess, how do you cope with the, the, the fact that the word socialism gets all this negative connotations? Or maybe it's not as bad in England as it is here. You said that, you know, socialism, I guess, doesn't really exist. It's just you take care of people or you don't. I mean, go ahead and elaborate on that. Well, we, we've, I think we've, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the word socialism and communism have, have, have come to mean something that, you know, they didn't mean when, when our organization started 100 years ago. Um, communism means Soviet Russia to those people. So you get a whole load of bad reactions because if you use that word. And socialism means um, labor governments. Um, you've had a little bit of that in the States with um, Roosevelt and the, the, new, the New Deal, wasn't it? Um, and people call that, some people call that socialism. It generally means, in government, it, it tends to mean um, nationalised industries, um, a bigger state, more state intervention in the markets, um, and generally speaking, more um, a, a bit more legislation for the poor so you know there's a few vote winner kind of uh, kind of measures um, um, that, are, that are put in by those governments <clears throat> but in terms of socialism as we understand it as a moneyless non-market society it, it's, it's you know they're, they're not to, they're not they're not any different from the uh, the right wing um, they've uh, and you know the, the 
the time that they've spent in office, you know, they, they break as many strikes, you know, they stop as many um, workers' pay claims as the uh, as the right wing do. So, you know, to us, they what happens is we we say use word socialism, people think we, we mean the uh, Labour Party. Well, you know, the Labour Party has uh, specifically repudiated the word socialism now for some years, mm-hmm. um, which is. I suppose, in a way, that's quite good because people are now forced to forced to realise that okay, socialism doesn't mean the Labour Party. So, what does it mean? So, it makes them ask the question, what it means. Um, but I think if you if you've got a if you've got a revolutionary um, idea and, and it's around for long enough, what happens is that the language tends to be appropriated by other people who use it for their own purposes, which may not be anything like your purposes, and if you give the, if you give it long enough, the words undergo a kind of metamorphosis, um, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. You have two choices. The first is to change your terminology to some other form of words, and then risk the same thing happening all over again. Or you just say, well, we'll stick with the original terminology and fight it out and try and reclaim those lost meanings. Um, now, what we've tried to do in the World Socialist Movement is the, is the latter of those. We've, we've tried to reclaim the lost meanings. We've tried to say, look, these things that are claimed for socialism and communism, um, they were not. They were fake. They were bogus. Right. And this, is, this, is what it, this is what these words originally meant. This is what they still mean. We are trying to fight back to, to get back the original meanings. Some people understand that, but as you said, an awful lot of people react quite instinctively against it. What on earth do you do? If, if the Zeitgeist movement was to carry on for, you know, um, fingers crossed, you know, we have the success. But if not, and the Zeitgeist movement is around for, you know, some decades, uh, what I fear that you'll see happening is other groups with possibly with no interest in your aims, starting to appropriate some of your phraseology. You, you, you may start to see the term uh, resource-based economy start to mean something else. You know, We're actually already seeing that. That's funny that you really? put that out. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically... scary. Yeah, it is scary, and that's one of the reasons why we're, we're careful about it. And it, got, it went to mm. the point even that Jacques... Fresco had to consider the idea of um, possibly trademarking the concept because we have people who, (laughs) well, I know, and they they freaked out about it, but it's just basically what we're running into is is that there are some people who, they have some ideas that they want to get building right now, and they don't understand that in the Zeitgeist movement, we feel that we're going to need a lot more people um, you know, to really get anything done. 300,000 people is, is interesting until you consider that 300,000 people scattered all over the globe in various little chapters is not necessarily, you know, a huge movement. Um, and that we need more awareness uh, as far as the general populace is concerned to this notion of this idea that, you know, we really don't have to be in a system where we're, you know, enslaved to our bosses. We really could develop a system where everybody can, you know, take care of themselves through technology mm. It just to get the idea into enough heads before we even start thinking about you know going any further, and they, some of them they they disagree, and then they they come to you know they they come up with their ideas about how they want to build something and they want to use our name and our terms and all that, 
And we try to tell them, look, we don't, one of the things we're worried about here is, is that if you were to make such a commune and it doesn't work, then it will be used as ammunition against mm. us. You know, yes, and yes. That's, that's happening right now. You know, look at all the failed communes of history. Well, well, I have. I studied a lot of the failed communes, and most of the, the failures in the communes wasn't because there was a problem with Marxism. It had to do with more with the, the people involved or some kind of problem, like some catastrophe that happened to them, like this one commune where everything was kind of built on this granary that they had and then it got destroyed by fire. Um, I still suspect just by reading it. I'm like, wow, I wonder if somebody burned that thing down to get rid of those people, you know, but it destroyed their commune because they had everything staked in it. And then there was always the problems of, you know, other communes that have had other, you know, various political issues and people not really being able to get along. And that was another thing that I told people on a different show about why we're not building cities yet was that, mm. you know, the conduct, you know, we have to change the way we, we approach things. We still have a lot of people who are trolls on our internet forums and, you know, they attack each other and their, their means of communicating are so aggressive and nasty that I'm like, this is, mm. You know, you introduce that into a situation where everybody's supposed to be getting along, you know, you're going to have nothing but trouble, you know, because we have to be able to rise above that well, sort of thing. Well, I mean, I, I, I noticed, yeah, you, you write about that on your on your blog and you, you, you talk about the problem of uh, uh, membership. And uh, I thought that was interesting because, um, I mean, at the moment, to, to be a, a member of Zeitgeist, what you do is you just, you just, you know, put your email address into the um, you know appropriate box, and um, you sign up in that way. And um, what you what you were writing was that uh, you were in fact you were writing about a troll, as I recall. Yeah. Um, um, somebody who's he was a Ayn Randite by the sound of him. Who's um, he, he said he wasn't interested in egalitarianism at all. Um, but he, nevertheless, he claimed to be a member of the Zeitgeist movement, and um, like you said, well, you know, this is this is the problem that we've got. This is one of the reasons why we can't really go ahead with the city at the moment because we've got these are the kind of some of the, you know, we we don't have genuine members. These are some these are some of the members we've got. Um, I mean, we didn't have time to talk about it on the show, but it, it's it's something that um, again, it's a. I think it's a phase that you you've got to go through. You, you, what you what you're going through at the moment, I, was, I suppose, is um, what you might call sort of expansionist phase. You know, you're expanding very fast. You, you you you're spreading the ideas. You're getting a lot of attention, and it's brilliant what you're doing. I mean, it's it is really good. And you've got 375,000 well uh, online uh, members in that way. So, you know, it's really good, and I wouldn't want to criticize that at all. Um, what, what you're going to need to do, I think, at, at a certain point, is think about this question of membership um, a bit further. Um, uh, from several points of view, uh, one is so, so that you don't have people claiming to be members who then stand up in public or go on TV programs and then come out with, I don't know, racist or fascist remarks and attribute them to you. If you don't, if you have a proper system of membership, you're able then to say, "Look, this guy wasn't a member. He's not on a membership list." You see right. what I mean? At the moment, you're not able to do that. I mean, imagine a really, imagine a really horrible case if somebody kills somebody or, or somebody commits a terrorist um, um, act and claims to be a Zeitgeist member. I mean, that's a that's a blood chilling thought, but. 
at the moment you wouldn't actually be able to just to do to um, to refute it because you know you don't really have a sort of formalized membership system so i think this is a, an issue that you know maybe it's not you don't need to deal with it now but at, at some point you're going to have to think about it and um we've got a i mean our organization i would i would say my opinion is that we've outlasted every other um organization in the UK and probably in Europe by having a strong membership policy um, very strong membership policy the strongest that you would probably find anywhere um, now I'm not suggesting that your organization would want to copy us in this although I'd understand it if you did to be honest mm-hmm. um, so you, you may not you probably you may not be aware of this but um, what we do is we actually make it pretty hard for people to join our organization because we make them do a test Not a, ri- yeah. not a written exam not a That written is actually exam. A, that is actually what Peter Joseph is working on right now on the forum Is that right? We, we have oh. a lot of people who come to our forums who are just there to naysay or just there to cause problems and Yeah, um, even if it's you know, it's it's not just a matter of like it's it, one of the things that we, we waste a lot of our time with is answering questions from people who clearly didn't even bother to watch the film. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll show up and they'll be like, you haven't thought any of this through. I mean, it, it got so bad that I actually had to make a sticky post in the Venus Project section called, before you post another, the Venus Project is flawed in all capital letters thread, <laughs> please yeah. read this. And I yeah. said, you know, before you go doing that, have you watched the film? Have you read the book? Have you read the website? Have you, you know, yeah. you even know what you're talking about? Because we waste hours of our time on these yeah. people who are just lazy and just want to show yeah. up and attack people. So yes, we are well, we are we, working on that actually. We get that as well on our online forum mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, from people. And you can do an FAQ and you can put up loads and loads of stuff on but some people aren't interested in doing work. They but these are the trolls, aren't they? These are people, that's what they do. That's mm-hmm. that's their game. And yeah, it is very frustrating. But they're not the real problem because they're not in they're not if, if you like, they're, you know, they're just outside the tent, pissing on the tent. Well, the problem that you, you want to worry about is people inside the tent pissing in the tent. Right. Uh, and this is where, um, you know, this is why we, and I, as a, I mean, I, I think it's one of the things that we've done right in, in the World Socialist Movement. And, you know, if you wanted to ask me about things we've done wrong, well, we could have a long conversation about that. But one of the things we've done right, I think, is we've had a, a strong membership policy we don't take anyone as a member who we're not satisfied that if we're not satisfied that they don't understand the case right and and it's not a case you know it's not a case that you can you know explain in a sentence you know we 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 interrogate people pretty you know pretty fairly people do get into our organization who are not really socialists but it's hard you know, it can be done, but it's hard. And when we find out that they're not socialists, well, basically we, you know, we don't usually have to expel them. We 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 just say that look, you know, they need to leave. They're not they're not really, um, you know, they shouldn't be in our organisation. So they can get in, but it's tough. Now, how do you um, reach? Well, that being the case, then how do you reach new people? Like, you know, like to try to recruit. I mean, at, at that point, obviously, because that's the only oh. other problem with it is you want people to be able to feel that they can approach you. So, absolutely, absolutely, and um, 
I mean, my, I suppose my initial answer to that is we haven't done very well. Compared to Zeitgeist, we have not done very well. We have, we do have a, a movement of, uh, we have a, a people around the world, but nothing like in the numbers that you've got. Um, and we've been going an awful long time, and let's face it, who's, who's heard of us? Compared to Zeitgeist, lots of people have heard of Zeitgeist. Not too many people have heard of us. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to claim in any way that we you know we we we've, we've got the right way of doing things at all. Zeitgeist has done amazing things in the short time it's been going. I'm, I'm full of admiration. A lot of our members are, um, despite differences of opinion over things. But I do think this is something that. Um, if it doesn't account for our success in propagating our case, it does at least account for our endurance. <laughs> and if you if you if you can be bothered to look up the history of left-wing organisations in America and in Britain, I'm not particularly interested in it, so I wouldn't blame you for not being. But mm-hmm. they're very short-lived. They don't last very long. What tends to happen is they they spark up. They have a bit of a bit of a sort of a time in the sun. And then they fade out, or they split, and they become new organisations, and they're forever changing. I mean, this is why I'm not interested in them, really, because it's just this long, long, long history of these splits of splits of divisions of factions of feuds of more splits. It just goes on and on. It's really, really boring. But none of them lasts. And we're actually the, the second oldest political party in the UK. Right. The only part, the only party that exists that's older than us is the Conservative Party. You know, the main Conservative Party. We're even older than the Labour Party, and um, it's it, really quite. To me, I, I, mean, I still think that's quite amazing that uh, we've survived this long. We haven't succeeded. We haven't prospered. We haven't got socialism. We haven't we haven't succeeded in any of the things that we tried. To, we set out to do, you know, a hundred years ago. But the fact that we're actually still here, the organisation still exists with this long unbroken record through two world wars and a great depression and all the rest of it, I think does say something important about um, how to survive in you know, the world of capitalist politics. And we have survived, and I think we've done it by being tough on membership um, criteria, by saying, right, you can be a member of this party provided that you agree with it, everything we're saying and you understand it. And it's the understanding that we're trying to propagate. We do have lots of sympathizers, lots of people who aren't members. We say, look, you know, people can, people can, you don't need to be a member of the, of our organization in order to be, um, in order to work for world socialism or, or you know, resource-based economy. Um, we're absolutely delighted that Zeitgeist is doing what it's doing and that it's um, and it's popularizing an idea. In fact, what you're doing and what I think you're trying to do is you're trying to make it mainstream, which is terrific. It's something we wouldn't, we've never been able to do, is make it mainstream. People still look at us, you know, treat us as if we're a bunch of cranks. Right. And hopefully what, what the impact of... Um, zeitgeist will be is that people will now start to say oh well actually maybe maybe this idea isn't so cranky after all maybe it's not so dumb it's not only 10 people in one place in britain there's people all over the world who are talking about this 
So that's the contribution Zeitgeist has made, which, you know, as I say, I think it's terrific. Um, so you don't, you know, lots of your members wouldn't be acceptable in our organization simply because they wouldn't, they don't understand the case. Right. You see well, what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally understand, actually. And it's like, I think that the first reaction, to, the knee-jerk reaction to some of our membership, because we do have a lot of anarchists, and yeah. their their knee jerk reaction to anything like this is what you're you're being an authoritarian you're excluding people and I'm like okay you don't you don't grasp this it's like for example just a little while ago <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had the community planet guy on and he talked about the fact that in order to get involved in the community planet organization because they're trying to build working communities with yeah. he said that you can't just go into this thing with your previous value structure and expect it to work you know yeah. you, you have to you know he says we screen people and we interview them to see if they're going to have the right mentality to do this. You know, right. and this guy is, you know, he, this guy is about as authoritarian as Gandhi. He was a really nice person, <laughs> you know, mm. but, but even outside of the issue of having authority over the ideas, it has to do with the fact that the system simply will not work if you have people, as you said, you know, pissing in the tent, you know, yeah. and as long as that's the way that they think that they're going to go about things, then it's not going to work. A lot of the other stuff they want is that they, they want to already have, for example, within the zeitgeist movement, with the membership as loose as it is, they want to see democracy for how we make all of our decisions. Like, you know, we right. want to, well, what are you saying we're not building a city yet? Well, who, who voted on that? You know, right. we, we want to vote on that. We don't agree with you. And I'm like, look, guys, Jacques Fresco looked at us and said, this is what I would like to do. If you'd like to come with me, come on. If you yeah. don't, I'm not putting a gun to your head and making you be part of this movement. But this is yeah. what we're doing. And, yeah. you know, he, he does listen. If you talk to Jacques, you can convince him of things. You know, I convinced them that, for example, that using political parties as a means by which to reach the masses was a good idea because before that they didn't want to do it. So you can't yeah, talk to them, but it needs yeah. to freaking make sense, you know, because, you know, and as I told people earlier, it's like, you know, because Brian Moore, actually, the, the Socialist Party guy I told you about before, is one of the ones who turned me out of this, was he pointed out, for example, in the United States, the Socialist Party has never really gotten anybody elected, but he feels that a lot of the changes made to the Democratic Party were made in an attempt to try to get the Socialist Party, you know, voters. And that puts people right. like Obama in a position where, well, if I can't pay lip service to socialism, I'm going to lose votes to this guy, so I guess I better adopt his ideas. And mm. it's still not the perfect solution, but it get, then it gets those ideas into the heads of people of like, oh, universal health care, that's kind of a good idea, you know. What can we yeah. do with that? You know, rather than just going, what healthcare? That's evil. You know, no, never. You know, <laughs> that's that's what that socialist guy said, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, hurt him. You know, and that's that's how these people make changes. And I, like for example, I've I've thought about approaching the Green Party here because their ideas are similar to ours. And um, there's some socialist party groups in the area that I've thought about talking to. And there there are even some capitalist groups that I'm even like I'm I'm still on the national committee for a small. Uh, party that is mostly made up of free market capitalists, um, you know, but it's, and so we're trying to communicate the ideas to them. And as I was pointing out to Peter, you know, um, is that this is where the people who care or give a damn are. This is where you're going to find them is in these third parties, people who are already thinking outside the box, who are already thinking they're looking for solutions. They may not agree with everything, but you're going to have a hell of a lot more luck recruiting those people than you are the, the mainstream Democrats or Republicans um, and I don't know what the British equivalents are, but I'm sure there is over there. I guess it would be the Conservative and the Labour Party, I guess, would be the equivalents if I was right. But, yeah, you know, you, know you, you can talk to some of these people, but it tends to be it's, it's like a filter up situation rather than a filter down if you're going to expect any real changes. 
Um, mm. And it, it's just it's a slow process, but you know, and I, I. But the point that I was getting at was is that they're expecting that Jack Fresco is going to hold elections right now over what we're doing, when in many cases a lot of the people involved don't really get it, or they, yeah. you know, and more to the point, we don't even can't even monitor what these people's you know attitudes are. We get a lot of people, for example, the Alex Jones crowd hates us. And they'll come into our forums, and then they'll take things that people have said out of context, and then they'll go to some blog somewhere and say, oh, did you see this? They were talking about reeducating people. It was so evil. You know, this is what they said, and this is from the Zeitgeist Forum website. We have no idea who, who would be participating in these elections that everybody's suggesting. We have no way to track them. You know, we have no way to make sure that those are actually members of the movement. So even if we did want to do it, even if we did think everybody was ready, we would have to create some kind of system to prevent such voting from being interfered with. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's just it's just not a practical idea. Mm. Um, uh, one super fast second. I'm sorry, this is a little embarrassing, but I must run to the restroom. So, I'll oh, be, sure, yeah. We're, okay. we're still recording on the archives, so this will be heard. So I apologize to my listeners, but my bladder is really going to explode. I'll be right back. <laughs> um, I know, Chibi, if you're there, because um, you asked to be added to the call, if you wanted to make your point with Patty while I'm gone, so we don't just have dead air, that'd be great. Um, I had a friend of mine to the call, but I'll be right back. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I will chime in since he had to go. Oh, hi, hi. Hello. Hi. I'm a member as well and a panelist on his show sometimes. Okay. I really enjoyed your your uh, movie, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there was something I did want to add about the membership thing, because uh, I hmm. agree with you, especially if you're going to have a uh, – a specific platform that you're pushing in it's on a political level you do need a strong sort of membership I guess the difference here with us is right now it is really loose and vague in a sense mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. we're just this widespread group of people who just wants to push out ideas to as many people as possible um, really make everything go viral and like you said yourself popularize uh, the idea make it sort of mainstream. That's sort of what we are trying to do, but we don't have yeah, the absolutely. platform that we're pushing in politics or this or that. So let's say some nut goes and blows up a building and he happens to post it on our forum or whatever. Um, it would be hard. I guess I could see where it would be linked to us, but if we're not, you know, we're not this really strong knit organization right now where they could really, uh, there wouldn't be much repercussion of it other than just, I guess, some people would say, well... They couldn't really pin it on you, could they? No. Right. Yeah. No. But, I mean, well, we're getting there, though. I mean, like, as, I, as we pointed out earlier, the, the law enforcement in the area is already being said that owning Zeitgeist is a reason to suspect somebody of terrorism, even though there's there's no violence advocated in it at all. It's heading in that really? direction. Yes. Um I have a document actually that was recently declassified that was given out to law enforcement where they have Zeitgeist listed as, well, if you're involved with Zeitgeist, it means you're part of the, the terrorist militia groups that are being watched by the FBI and all that other crap. So mm. it, it's starting that way, but that's, that's as we said earlier, the, the capitalist system inclined towards fascism is going to do things like that to protect itself. Mm. Now, and now you were saying something before I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, yeah, that was here in Missouri, I think. Well, well, I know we have a document like that in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I read through it more, it didn't really say directly that if you're inside guys, then therefore you are this. It just said 
it was like this vague thing like these are a bunch of groups you might want to watch out for and then it listed a bunch and Zeitgeist was on the list. So yeah. Right. But so was Ron Paul, I think. And I, uh, can I, I I'll um I'll I'll give you um my my take on this if I may. Go um ahead. we we we've had um um uh, some some years ago we we were um gonna organise one of our groups, our locals, uh was gonna organise an event in a in a town in, in Britain. And the um one of the organizers got a got a knock on the door from uh, special branch, which is the um I don't know if you know what that is, but that's uh, the British version of the sort of I suppose you call it the secret service or something like that. And um, he was a very nice chap, and he just said, oh, well, you know, I've just come along to tell you that it, you, it's all right to go ahead um, with, your, uh, with your event. Um, we've checked you out, we've got files on you, and um, there's no problem. Um, well, as you can imagine, this was something of a shock to uh, our members. But it wasn't really a surprise. And uh, the reason it wasn't a surprise is that um, we sort of expect states to do this kind of thing. We expect governments to do this kind of thing. Anybody, any organization that is um, that's explicitly anti-establishment or anti-state or anti, you know, the status quo is going to be investigated. They, they're, they're, they, are, they are going to, um, you know, put little exclamation marks next to, next to those organizations. Well, you have to expect that that's going to happen. Now, you can say, right, there are various options that you've got of how to deal with this. And um, in a lot of countries where they don't have political freedoms, I know this for a fact because I know I've, I've met people in these uh, countries. And I'll give you one example, Iran. Um, we have a colleague who was an Iranian. He was involved in the left underground in Iran, that's to say the Leninist left underground in Iran before he joined our organization. We actually said to him, well, why were you in a Leninist group? We were opposed to the Leninists. And he said, because it was the only group that existed. It was all there was. And so we said, well, why was it, why was it the Leninist underground? We don't believe in secrets of organization. Organized in the open in Iran, you'll be arrested. Now, the way they organized in Iran was they had secret cells of activists. They weren't terror cells. They were just activists. But they were, they, were, they were organized in secret cells, and each cell had about three people in it. No cell knew any other cell. They only knew their, their controller, if you like, their contact. And they had to organize this way in secret because of the Iranian state. Um, now... My colleague um, was then, he, 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 most of his friends were arrested, some were executed, he was forced into the army and into the front line during the Iran-Iraq war, and uh, where he was shot, he, he managed to escape from hospital, and he, he walked something like 3,000 miles to get out of Iran over mountains to get to the west. So he had a long story to tell. Um, his was an example of what happens when you don't have political freedoms and you're trying to organize um, a political opposition. 
Now, in the West, we're lucky. We're so lucky that we don't have to operate like that. We can operate in the open. But we still have to expect that there's going to be investigations. There's going to be raised eyebrows by the state. They're going to be looking at us. Now, what they're going to be looking for is evidence of terrorist activities, evidence of um, seditious behavior. What I think is really important, and I'm sorry I've taken a long time to get to my point um, here, but what I think is really important, and this, this, this goes back to my, my um, earlier point about, um, a, a mem- about a strong membership policy, is that you have to operate in the open. Because what we're trying to do, and you, you know, you, you, you say the same thing, is we don't want a violent revolution. We don't want some sort of um, horror, Bolshevik scenario. We don't want sort of, you know, we're not going to be lining people up against the wall. It's nothing like that. It's a, it's a, just a peaceful, well-organized, um, systematic change of society. Now, it needs to be done in the open. It needs to be seen to be democratic. It needs to be accountable. And the people that are involved in it, i.e. us, need to be operating um, in plain view so that our, our, our behavior can be inspected, our motives can be trusted, and our organization respected. I think that's always got to be true. Um, states will, you know, they, they will look at, they will be interested, but they, they're really more interested in those organizations that are secretive, that, that uh, hold secret meetings. But those organizations that really are not democratic, not interested in um, um, open consultation, have those organizations that don't have open meetings, um, we always have open meetings. All our meetings are open. Our, we don't have private meetings. There's no such thing in our organization. Anyone can come to any meeting um, of, of our groups anywhere. Um, and, the, and that was the lesson that uh, we learned from that, that visit by our special branches, that they are looking. They are looking at us. And they'll be looking at you. But there's no reason for, to be feel particularly paranoid about that. The state may be paranoid, but that doesn't mean you have to be. All you need to do is make sure that you're operating above board, because what you're trying to do is not illegal. It's not against, you know, it's not some criminal thing that you're involved in here. You're, you're engaged in a perfectly legitimate political ambition, which is to change society for the better. And that's supported by a whole raft of laws in your country, my country, in other countries that, that have got democratic um, and political freedoms. And, you know, be proud of that be, and stand by that. Sorry, that was a bit of a speech, wasn't it? Well, no, it's fine, actually. It was all relevant, and I'm glad that you brought it up. I guess the, the only thing that comes to my mind as a former libertarian activist is that when I was running for Congress, I... I studied that a lot of the legislation that they're putting in now is going to make it more and more easy for things in the United States to turn into the way they are in Iran. Um, and I, I don't think that that'll happen overnight. I think it's actually happening kind of under the radar. Everything you said is absolutely relevant, though, and that's one of the reasons why we are totally open. But the other thing that we have in the United States that has become a problem, and I learned this because I worked in Senator Mike Gravel's campaign for president. I don't know if you were familiar with him. He was kind of a fiery old man with glasses and he got into the debates and, you know, did not take no for an answer with some, some, some of the people. But 
is that they do send uh, agents into your organizations. Um, and in some cases, mm. these agents can even bring up things like, well, why don't we blow up a power plant? Yeah. You know, you know they'll, they'll be basically agent provocateurs, so to speak, to try to get you to, to do whatever they, you know, what they're looking for. And then they do send in sometimes police. We have proof of this, too. They'll send police into a peaceful protest that dressed as protesters to throw a rock or something to give them the authority to be able to, you know, to end the protest. Yeah, cool. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say that the henny penny, the sky is falling just yet, but I, I think that that's another one of the reasons why we've emphasized to people that one of the reasons we're focused on communication is that right now that's a lot easier than it will be um, in the future if things continue to go in the direction that they're going. Because, I mean, just reading the Patriot Act uh, was, you know, enough to give me a headache, uh, but the, the Homegrown Terrorism Act is another one where they're trying to look into ways to regulate the Internet to make things like this broadcast more difficult. The FCC doesn't like that I can do radio shows on the Internet that they have no, no say in. Um, you know, there are also uh, just basically they, the system is going to do things to protect itself because the Internet is scaring the hell out of them. You know, it, without the Internet, Ron Paul uh, would have disappeared like probably a whole five or six months before he did. Um, mm. You know, uh, the, and the damage that he did in the time that because of the fact that they couldn't silence him, like bringing up the Federal Reserve. Well, we saw what happened. Now the Federal Reserve, is, it, you know, he's almost got all the sponsors. He has enough sponsors now to pass the bill if it ever goes before the House to audit the Federal Reserve. Whereas before Ron Paul did all of that, uh, nobody even knew what the Federal Reserve was. You know, so that's, that's an example mm -hmm. of the kind of things that we're doing that might scare the establishment a little more, that the game has changed a little bit. I think everything you just said is totally relevant. The only reason that I say that we need to be careful is just that I think that um, some aspects of the system are, are, are a bit more uh, draconian than others, I guess would be the way to put it. Uh, and I think that it's possible that in the near future, um, because, like, you know, as I said, there, the, one thing leads to another, particularly when you're reading the, the, the stuff in the American politics. Like, the Patriot Act in of itself is, is scary, uh, but the way they write it is that they, they wrote it in such a way that it refers to like a billion other pieces of the national code, so you can't even totally read what it is that this thing is saying. It says change this line and this code to say this and this line and that to say that. Then you take something like the, the Homegrown Terrorism Act, which is we are trying to find ways to evaluate where homegrown terrorism is created, and, they, they, and, and in the language of the, the act, they act like, it's just an epidemic. Like there's just people blowing themselves up at every McDonald's. You know, it, mm. it's, it's this huge problem. There's Timothy McVeigh's around every corner. You know, and that, that and then that's, that's BS. But you know, it doesn't change the fact that that's what they're trying to convince us of. But but it on its own, you're like, well, I guess if I'm not a terrorist, you know, then you have the Military Commissions Act, which is if you're not a citizen, then we don't need to worry about um, you know giving you any kind of rights, and you could just disappear to Guantanamo, and nobody will ever see you there. And then they, they say, but don't worry about that. That's only for people who are not citizens. Then when you look at different, uh, the different drafts of Patriot Act II, for example, some of which did not pass, um, but it has the ability for, you, for the president to remove your citizenship if he deems you, a, you know, deems you to be a terrorist. Those are all mm -hmm. like actual documents. And it's like when you put them all separately, it's not as big of a deal. But when you put, well, through the Homegrown Terrorism Act, we monitored your Internet traffic, and then the president determined that you were a terrorist, so he removed your citizenship. And so now that your citizenship is removed, well, the Military Commissions Act says we can ship you off to Guantanamo and nobody will ever know where you were or, you know, or where you are. And um, we can put you on, you know, into private tribunals and execute you. That's, you know, that all could be nothing. It could, you know, mean nothing. It could, you know, like I said, it's not any penny the sky is falling, but 
for people who are who remember the way that Adolf Hitler subtly changed the the constitution in you know in Germany to the point where he was just well the despotic ruler. It, for those of us who are watching that, we have to be careful about it, and that's one of the reasons why some of us say that's what brings us back to one of the reasons we're focused on communication right now is that in the event that we're right and that there is some kind of fascist regime trying to take hold as capitalism tries to protect itself in the same way that communism did when communism was failing. I mean, well, mind you, you know, we're talking about the fascist communism, obviously. We've already made that differentiation. But those systems do these things to protect themselves when they're, becoming, when they're, they're getting to be in trouble. Monarchies did the same thing. You know, as they started to fall apart, they started to become more despotic to try to scare people. You know, if we're right, and then if, if that system is developing into being something far more insidious than we have now, then we need to be getting the information out to as many people now while it's easy. Um, I, I, well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think absolutely, you, you've got to. Um, somebody once said, um, "Hope for the best and plan for the worst." Um, but I, I would say, I would say that. Um, you know, to put a slightly more positive um, light on it, mm -hmm. I think what we're dealing what we're dealing with now in um, the 21st century is something that the capitalist ruling class has never had to face before, um, not in the 1930s, at any rate, um, and certainly not in 1917. Dealing with um, a working class that's better educated than it's ever been. And it's better better informed than it's ever been, and it's got better means of communi communications than it's ever had. I think these are things that are going to be um, really. I think these are game changers. These are the things that are, have changed the um, the political terrain, and I don't think those things can be taken away. I know there are there are efforts to control it. China is certainly trying to control the internet. Mm -hmm. But capitalism is too dependent on the internet now for for states really to be able to intervene and control it. And capitalism also needs workers to be educated to a far higher degree than it's ever needed before. It needs us. You, you need to, you know, that, that, that's the thing that I think people sometimes forget is that capitalism relies on us. We're the workers. We're the people who run it for them. Capit who are the capitalists? They're just... You know, there are a bunch of fat old men who smoke cigars and do no work, really. You know, they, they don't do anything. We do all the work, all collectively. We're the ones that uh, make it all happen. Right. We're, the ones, we're the ones who could make it all stop. And they can't threaten us into, all of us, into compliance with their regime if we don't want to. And if... And, and why aren't you know that that's what excites me about Zeitgeist is that you're using the new media in a way that much more effectively than you know we've ever managed to do, and you're using it uh, effectively. You're reaching a lot of people. That's going to spread. Well, we we hope, don't we, that it's going to spread mm -hmm. um, right around the world, and. And people are responding. I mean, I was I, I, I was just looking at some of the uh, statistics of who's who's signing up. I mean, I know we've, we've had this discussion about membership, but even so, you know, you've got um, um, you know you've got thousands of people in in each of the European countries. You've even got eight people in the, in the Vatican. I thought that was quite funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is that is pretty odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, maybe one of them is the Pope. You never know. 
And <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you you are getting this. I mean, okay, you know, it's still small. It's still, you know, you've got a long way to go. But, you know, you're getting this global reach that imagine, imagine doing that even, I don't know, 20 years ago. It would have been inconceivable. Imagine having the the access to filmmaking and to film dissemination, you know, 30 years ago. It wasn't, it was beyond imagining. It couldn't have been done. I mean, I know because we were there. I was there, you know. We were, we were, we were reduced to, you know, handbills, you know, giving out pieces of paper in the street. That's all we could manage. So, you know, things are moving on so fast, so rapidly. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to be a sort of Pollyanna and uh, say, oh, it's all going to be great. You know, it's all it's all wonderful. You know, I'm certainly not doing that. But I think, um, you know, fears of a fascist takeover, although, the, yes, certainly, you, you certainly don't want to discount those things. And uh, the, 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 the possibility does exist. But the power of the working class, you know, that is, you know, 90 five ninety six ninety eight percent of the people in the world is very real and it's 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 of massive importance to the uh, ruling class that the working class is educated so that it can do the jobs that need doing uh, that's that's a process of capitalism itself as it's advanced as it's become more technologically capable as it's mechanized production um you know Workers now need to be fluent in uh, so many different skills compared to what they had to know, um, say, a hundred years ago. Um, I don't know about the. I don't know what what, it, what the situation is like in the U.S. But in the U.K., um, when I went to when I was at university, it was about thirty years ago now, because I'm so old. Um, the the proportion of people, young people who went to university was around about four to five percent. Today it's fifty percent and rising. They're absolutely you know, and this is the this is the state doing this. This is the state making sure this happens. Because the requirements of industry are so much more sophisticated than they were then. The state drives the education system at the behest of the um of big business. Um, the state education system is run for the, for the benefit of big business. It's really the business uh, community that dictates what it wants workers to learn. And what it wants workers to learn is getting more and more sophisticated. Workers need to be able to multitask. They need to, be able, they need to know more. They need to be smarter at more things all the time. Well, in one way, this is great for them, this is great for capitalism, but in another way, a completely different way, uh, an, unhi- an unseen cost to them, it's great for us because it means that we as workers are more... We're, I think what I hope is that it means that we're able to critically assess ideas better than we used to. We're able, right. to communicate, we're able to communicate those ideas better and to more people than we ever used to. And, and what I notice, and this is a subjective thing, what I notice is people are believing less and less of the old ideologies, you know, less of the old gods, the old religions, the old um, 
um, people people here anyway don't um, don't believe anything that politicians have got to say anymore. Um, right. Maybe they they transfer their devotion to celebrities instead. Maybe, but uh, that's another question. But well. Uh, real quickly, uh, what I would one thing I would say in response to what you were pointing out about how we need to have more sophisticated workers is that one thing also that is getting more and more sophisticated is their means by which they distract us. You know, uh, the the entertainment industry is getting really good at being you know the the, the bread and blood so to speak. The you know just like the Colosseum in Rome. You know, we, they're they're getting so much better at finding ways. I mean, it's like I, I said this on one of my previous shows was that. Uh, I had this encounter in this one voice chat server of these people who play World of Warcraft, and I, I ended up talking about something political there. And after I had left, like, they really uh, complained to my friend that I had talked about politics, and it was just this mm. terribly gauche thing that I brought that up. And then, oh, like, yeah. you know, and then the next day, they're yelling and screaming at each other because their raid on World of Warcraft did not go the way they wanted. They're, they're angry with each other. These are adults yelling and screaming about not getting some digitized gear that doesn't even exist in the real world. It only exists in a computer. But that was acceptable. <laughs> me, yeah, talking yeah. Of, me talking about being upset with the war in Iraq, now that was, that was something wrong with that. You know, I did something <laughs> wrong. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. but them yelling at each other about their, their World of Warcraft raid failing, that was, you know, that was totally acceptable. Completely normal behavior to get upset about that. You know? <laughs> and it's, it, that's why I said is that, I, and I'm not saying that you're wrong, I'm saying it's something we need to take into account is that, you know, in addition to that, though, is that although some of the things that they need our workers to do are definitely getting more, more advanced, their ability to keep us distracted is also getting advanced. Um, I agree. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. You're... The bread's got better and the circuses have got better. Right, it, exactly. Um, you know, and... <laughs> They also, I mean, it's like when you look at this, this, one of the things that ends up happening when you're trying to explain the Venus Project is you end up going on all these tangents, and they don't seem like they're relevant at first, but it's like you, you begin to realize that if you don't talk to people about just how deep-seated the capitalist system is screwing everything up, it goes beyond just the issue of do I have enough money or do I have enough food. It goes into what is the food. Well, the food is designed to be addictive. Um, like, we, you know, mm. even without, like, you know, I, I talked to real scientists about this. There's a guy recently who talked about the effects of high fructose corn syrup and gluten. And what the deal is with you know, gluten and high fructose corn syrup is that they're both designed so that your brain does not know that you're full. So you keep eating. You buy more. <laughs> you know, it's just like, right. it's, it's like the cigarette thing all over again. You know, and it, there are other reasons to use high fructose corn syrup. But when you go to a fast food restaurant or pretty much any restaurant, you know, they, they sell these high fructose corn syrup drinks, you know, sodas and all that. And then you end up, you know, I've, I've been to McDonald's several times thinking, well, I only need this combo. That's no problem. Then I'll drink a big, giant drink of high fructose corn syrup. Mm. And then I'll think to myself, man, I'm not, I'm not finished. I, I guess I better go get some more nuggets or maybe buy another burger or whatever. You know, it's, they don't realize that the system, it, it's, it's down into everything. And that's another reason why I said that the consumer, supposedly being the, the final arbiter, isn't going to fix anything. Because they find ways to make the consumer into their tool. Um, advertising is only the beginning of it. The, the, the other ways that they find ways to get people addicted to their products are very clear. And when the society's infrastructure is, is designed in such a way to make you dependent on various parts of it, like the oil industry, I honestly think that that whole, you know, bollocks about basically trying to artificially raise the, pro the cost of gas was them testing to see just how far they could push us. You know, mm. it's because it's not as though we could just decide not to go to work. You know, you can't. You can't just decide not to drive to the grocery store. 
But the way the infrastructure of our society is built, mm. you have to do that. That's one of the reasons like, we, get, we get people who say, well, why are you making your, your cities to be centrally planned? And I said, it's not, that, you know, it's not really the centrally planning in the way that you need to be concerned about is that there's no reason why your grocery store, your school, and all those other things can't just be right there. We waste so much energy on the way we, uh, we basically set up the way we live. You have residential zones and commercial zones and all that, and that makes sense at first. And then you think to yourself, you know, if I want to get a job, I, I must use a car. And all cars are run on the inter internal combustion engine. They go out of their way to make sure that that's the case. You know, and then and that means that I have to pay for gas. I don't have a choice. I must pay for gas. You know, they did reduce their usage a bit, but, you know, it was more of a solution of, well, let's just go to war with Iraq and take their oil is the solution as opposed to maybe we should find solutions that you know, would make it so I'm not, re you know, required to use gasoline. It's, it's difficult for people to understand. That I, would say. I know. Yeah, I, I know what you say about that. But um, that was um, I, I had a bit of a this is kind of recalling um, what um, Peter Joseph says about um, EVs, electric, electric vehicles. Um, I, I, I saw that. I saw that thing that he was. Um, in, uh, what, what was it? Where are we now? I think he was right was in, the, in the top title. Um, I think there's a. Um, I think there can be a bit of a. There's a danger. I think in um, some of the things that um, Peter was saying there. Um, the can it's. It, you can easily get led into an assumption because sometimes it's true, right, that capitalism produces the worst products rather than the best. There, there are many ways in which that, that in which that's true. Um, so you know, we don't need to go in, into those. Um, but it's not completely true, and it's not true all the time. And uh, uh, and I was I was a little bit worried that Peter was making a bit too much of that case. Um, I think he made too much of it altogether, actually, to be honest. Um, you know, you said that, um, you know, society goes out of its way to make sure that, you know, you have to use gas for an internal combustion engine car. Um, well, he brought, that, he brought that subject up to do with um, EVs and the whole question about why, you know, cars weren't, uh, cars weren't electric and how we could have electric vehicles you know straight away really if it wasn't for capitalism um i think he was underrating the uh the, the problems of uh infrastructure there he was and he was also overrating um the the capability of electric vehicles i mean he, he claimed that they could run for a thousand miles on one charge but the, the actual state of the art vehicle at the moment can do about a quarter of that um, so, I think he's also projecting into what would happen if we took money and put it into research and development of that technology that we could probably get there. I mean, I I did have a guy on my show not long mm. ago who's an expert on EVs, and he did say that there that, that there are limitations. It, it's more of a matter though is that if we were, for example, to take the money out of research and development for internal bu mm. internal combustion engine cars and put it into electric cars. It, we would be able to do that, and the infrastructure. You're right; it needs to be changed. Um, you know, we, we need to have. You know, we need to replace a lot of these 
uh, gas stations, obviously, with, you know, electric mm. power plants. But the, the, the idea is, is that is it reachable in the near future that if we put those resources that we've been using for this inferior technology in a superior technology, I feel, that, I feel that he is correct in that. I do agree that the infrastructure is not currently laid out, but it's, it's just like, you know, Jacques Fresco usually says, if we put the amount of energy that we put into the Manhattan Project into sustainable energies and geothermal plants and things of that nature, we could very easily get rid of the energy crisis altogether. That's where we run into a problem, though, is, is that the energy industry likes it just the way it is, which is I can artificially create scarcity um, for, a, you know, for a product that, I, you know, that may or may not even really be scarce um, and continue to make people dependent on it and then therefore justify my ridiculous profits based on the notion that supposedly this is scarce. Um, well, well, well yeah, I mean, I've, uh, well, I've got a, I just got a Christmas present a month ago from the power company, right, of four low-energy light bulbs, and I've had a, I've had a, a, a similar um, gift mm-hmm. um, of the same thing um, the year before. Um, now that's quite interesting, I think, because you know why would the power company be sending me low-energy light bulbs? According to the argument that Peter was putting forward, that right. just wouldn't happen. That just wouldn't happen. Now, he's right in a way that if it was only up to the power company, they wouldn't be interested in me reducing my power consumption at all. Of course they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Why would they? Right. Well, but the power company is not capitalism. The power company is one element in capitalism. And what I think that Peter doesn't or didn't in that talk give proper sort of recognition to is that the, the capitalism is made up of lots of elements, lots of different elements, lots of different elements of the capitalist class, which are often in competition with each other. And that includes the state. Right. So, so these, these elements can often contradict each other. So you can get situations where you get the power company sending you low energy light bulbs like happened to me because they're being obliged to do it by some legislation of the state towards low energy consumption. Do you see, do you see my, my point? Oh, there? yeah, totally. I think that something like that though, could just as easily be a PR move because this is one of the other things that they notice is like, why did the gas prices suddenly go down? And I think it's because some, suddenly people were starting to look, because even the capitalists agree that what happens when something gets too expensive is people start to look for alternatives. And once you start mm-hmm. paying attention to alternatives, and actually looking at it for real, like I wasn't aware of this, but I could be completely off the grid right now and never have to pay another electric bill for the rest of my life for about $18,000. I would mm. not even have looked at that if it wasn't for the fact that my electric bill was so high. Um, there comes a point where they realize, uh-oh, uh, well, we're, we're doing it now. They're, they're starting to look for other alternatives. We better, we better jack these prices down. And I'm not saying you don't have a legitimate point. I feel that you do. I also think, though, that it is possible, equally possible, in my opinion, that that could be a, just a PR move. You say, oh, yeah, oh. we care about alternative energy. We care about lowering the cost. We just sent you, you know, six, you know, six, uh, you know, light bulbs. You know, obviously we, we care. You know, I guess that's uh, well, I, I, <laughs> well, I actually found out why it was. They, they bought up a load of these light bulbs and then couldn't sell them hmm. and then decide, decided to, they weren't allowed to destroy them either by, because of legislation, which they would have probably, probably preferred to do. So they sent them out at some expense to themselves by post to all their users <laughs> just to get rid of them. Well, and then they so get that, a PR move out of it, though, when you think about so, it. 
So, yeah, no, I, you, you, you're absolutely right. But I think my, my, my main point is that um, different elements of uh, the capitalist um, ruling class are often in opposition to each other and their aims are different. Uh, so, um, where, you know, Peter argues that, um, that capitalism depends on, I don't know if he quite uses his form of words, but he, he argues that the, the capitalist system depends on um, outdated uh, technology and inefficiency because it makes more money out of that right. than more efficient, more efficient uh, technology. 